Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors for the week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we have Brian, Karina, Nora, Rebecca, Christina, Jacqueline, Lucy, Virginia, Rachel, Hadley, Cheryl, Jamie, Shannon, I.L., Bethann, Natalie, Amy, Kristen, Amanda, Lo, Michelle, and Lori. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Um, did you tell them where to go if they want to join? Yeah, Patreon, okay. patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Yes, and we have like over 100 episodes of other content, more content uh, there. We so have you can a go brand new out. episode coming tomorrow. Oh, cool. Okay, so... As we know, we're all watching a lot of streaming <laughs> services lately. Are you, Rachel? I sure am, Desi. Uh, so I came across a movie last week uh, that I had... I don't even think I had heard of this movie before. It's called Bernie. It stars Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine. Have you heard of this movie? I have. Okay. So it's directed by Richard Linklater. Linklater? Linklater? I, Linklater. I, Linklater. Linklater. And it was, uh, it's a pretty wild story. Did you see it or you had just heard of it? I just know of the movie. I remember when it came out, but I still haven't seen it. Okay. Well, if you want to see this movie, it's actually on YouTube for free. Like they have like a movie streaming service now. Uh, there's ads and stuff, but whatever. It's still a free movie. So you can check it out there. It's a pretty wild story that happens to be true. So I thought it would be a perfect movie versus reality this week since I thought maybe a lot of other people wouldn't have known the story because I didn't know the story at all, really. So um, my sources for this were that movie, Bernie, a 48 hours episode on the case and the reporting of Skip Hollinsworth for Texas Monthly. He's also the co-writer of the screenplay Bernie. And that's how Richard Linklater found out about the story, like reading his writing in Texas Monthly. And he wrote several pieces on this case throughout the years. So this is the story of Bernie Teed and Marjorie Nugent. Nugent. (laughs) Not related to Tad as far as I could tell. So Bernie was born August 2nd, 1958 in East Texas. His dad was a music and choral director at several universities, as well as working as a church music director and a singer. Bernie's mother was named Leela, and she tragically died in a car accident when Bernie was just three years old. His dad was driving during the accident, and Bernie said that his dad never forgave himself for the mom dying in this accident. In 1963, his father remarried, but his guilt about the accident led to heavy drinking, and he eventually died when Bernie was just 15 years old. Now, Bernie will later claim that he was molested by his uncle, Elmer Doucette, the mom's um, brother, which began when he was about 12 and escalated after his dad's death. The uncle will go on to deny this later, but Bernie says that's sort of in addition to the deaths of his parents, is sort of what darkened his already dark life. Because of this dark start, Bernie really came to have an affinity for those struggling to live after being devastated by the death of a loved one. To help support himself and his uh, sister, Bernie got a job at a local funeral home in Abilene, Texas, and that's where he started working in the funeral business. He was um, sort of doing yard work at first, but eventually he started helping with funerals because he had like a lot of personality, and that's something we're going to hear a lot about. So throughout. he was kind of like a goth boy. He wanted to work as a, as a mortician. No, he was like not a goth boy at all. But like, he was really fascinated with morbid stuff. Yeah, he was fascinated with morbid stuff, but like the opposite of a goth kid. Like he was a jubilant, 
like wanting to help people. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like we right. were goth, like into that kind of stuff, but he really like saw it as like the positive kind of thing. I like that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, I mean, despite what I just said, he would, he was really popular in high school and he would sometimes sneak the hearse out on weekends and drive his friends around town in it. I mean, look, that's something that's, <laughs> as I've said before in the show, is a dream of mine to be able to drive a hearse around with yeah, people. Yeah. That was like the best, like Claire in Six Feet Under had the green hearse. Do you remember that? Did you that, watch that show? I mean, yeah, that's like my dream car. Yeah. It's great. to have a hearse. So... He pretty much found his calling. He eventually receives an associate degree in mortuary science, and he starts working at a local funeral home. In 1985, at the age of 27, Bernie moves to Carthage, Texas, which is in East Texas, and began uh, working at Hawthorne Funeral Home, where he was a funeral director, and he really excelled at all aspects of the business. He did hair, he did makeup, he would sing and preach at services, and according to Linklater, people would literally request that he sing them to heaven. Like that was the goal of like everyone in town. They fucking love Bernie and Carthage. Like everyone loved this guy in the movie. You can really see like, obviously he's played by Jack Black, who is a very likable actor. Right. And he's like in his most Jack Black, like likable, like he's like driving around town, like waving to people and singing a song in his car, like at full voice. Like, it's just that type of guy. So, yeah. I mean, people loved Bernie. When he came into town, it was like this breath of fresh air, like, came into this small, sleepy uh, town. Now, he really connected with the families who came to him for services that they offered at Hawthorne. He was, like, made to do this job. In the movie, they describe him as someone who was upselling the coffins and the funeral extras, but it wasn't like a scam for him. He really believed in like making a funeral, like the special occasion for these people. And he would come up with like additional add-ons. Like in the movie, one of the things that he kind of invented was like, you could hire, you could pay extra at your service to have a white dove released while your body was going in the ground (laughs) to symbolize like your spirit going into the sky. So people like love that stuff. Like personally, I'm just like, "Eh, I don't care. (laughs) Like burn me. But people like were into it and he was into it too. So it was like a perfect job for him. Look, Desi, at your funeral, we're gonna have, <laughs> we're obviously going to have a roast. I want one of those pigs that are in the ground. No, we're going to have a roast. Okay. I meant we're going to roast you. Like, oh, <laughs> Desi, you fucking. I want a roasted pig. I want and a, a roast, roast pig at my funeral. <laughs> With the apple. We're going to have that too. We're going okay. we're gonna to roast you in the, uh, we're going to cremate you. <laughs> it's going to be a triple roast. We're okay. going to cremate you. We're going to have the Kahlua pig. Mm, yum. And then we're also uh, going to roast the shit out of you. Okay. Okay. Perfect. James is going to have his revenge against shit. you. Okay. So now... As I said, everyone in town loved him, especially the little old ladies, uh, as like one of his things that he would do would always devote special visits to checking in on the widows who like, uh, you know, he did their husband's funerals. He would like bring them their medications. He would run errands for them and he would just like check on them because they kind of would be so lonesome after their husbands died. This is a real full service (laughs) funeral service director. (laughs) Uh, So... He, you know, like I mentioned before, he's like the light of the town. He taught Sunday school. He was a gourmet cook. He was also involved in local theater, often starring in musicals and plays. Uh, Just a real shining member of the community. In the movie Jack Black, um, there's a scene from him performing in a local musical. He's the lead in The Music Man. And it's just like this... (laughs) 
<laughs> snippet of Jack Black, you know, playing whatever that guy's name is. Harold Hill. Harold Hill, yeah. So in 1990, he met Marjorie Nugent when her husband Rod died, and he was organizing the funeral. The town's opinion of Marjorie could not have been more different than Bernie. Now, Marjorie and Rod had moved back to Carthage, her hometown, in 1989. Rod was a wealthy banker and oil man, and the couple built a 6,000-square-foot estate on the outskirts of town. The town thought that Marjorie was a snob and a bitch. (laughs) I just like that because it's like, partially, I'm like, oh, who cares? (laughs) She was estranged from her sister and her son, and when she would go into town, she wouldn't even speak to anyone, giving the appearance that she was too good for everyone. She also had a rep for being cheap. One of the stories I read was that she had a bill for the vet that was like $45, and she like haggled to get the price down. Like her and her husband are millionaires. What? Yeah. That is a very cheap vet bill. Yeah, that's like, a, that's like a, just like a regular visit, even cheaper than a regular visit in LA, at least. That's cheaper than my regular visit. I mean, this visits. is 1990, though, but that's still, true. that's cheap. So in addition to that, she like didn't do any charitable things. Um, she didn't go to church, like all that kind of stuff that small town people really like get pissed they about. They notice when you're not yeah. in church. <laughs> um, apparently, if she loved you, she was nice to you. But you had to kind of cater to her every whim for her to love for her to love you. Now, even those who did love her found her difficult and mean. And one close relative believed that she was probably clinically depressed and not treating it. So when her husband died unexpectedly of heart fail- failure, very few people showed up at his funeral. Beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding the light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. 
Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. So I already mentioned that Bernie would take a special interest in widows. And in this case, he really made an effort because he knew no one liked Marjorie. Like she literally had no friends. So was he trying to basically be like, I'm going to bring the sunshine out in her life Basically, again. like he, he just took a special interest in her. Like he already was doing that with widows, but this was just like too sad for him to see. Like she had no one, like she literally had not a friend in town. So... He started dropping by for lunch. He would leave her gifts and flowers. He would run errands for her, bring her her medication. And she started feeling like a little schoolgirl again and was sort of all of a sudden smiling a lot and happy. She started giving him gifts, including her husband's $12,000 Rolex watch. Damn. The two eventually became inseparable. Now, how old is... What's the age difference here? She's 74 and I think that he is like 30. Okay, so, so it's quite like 44. A big age yeah. difference. Now, in an interview I saw with Bernie, he said that some of the places they would go just made me laugh was called the Cherokee Club and the Jalapeno Tree. <laughs> the Jalapeno Tree. <laughs> that sounds good, right? The Jalapeno Tree. Yeah. That does sound good. So, but it wasn't long before uh, Marjorie wanted more than a part time dinner date, and Bernie complained. And he complied with that in 1993. He said that she asked him to leave the funeral home and she gave him power of attorney and he helped pay her expenses and kind of became a personal assistant and like companion, like paid companion. Um, At some point, he, she actually altered her will, disinheriting her son and leaving her entire $10 million estate to Bernie. Now, they genuinely loved each other. I think he was the one person in the world um, who kind of felt um, love towards Marjorie at this point. Like she really wasn't liked. No one else could kind of give her that. So she really latched onto that. The rumor mill was churning that there was, but there was like nothing remotely romantic about the relationship. And that's because another long rumored gossip about Bernie was true. He was gay and pretty closeted. Um, about that. It was something that him and Marjorie never discussed, according to him. Uh, Yeah. I don't know that he ever acted on it. He was like the classic old school, like lifelong bachelor type gay, like that they have in movies, you know, like old movies. Right. That's what they say about him. He's a lifelong bachelor. Yeah. But it's like, this is 19, the early nineties. It was, he's just like that type of guy. Like, you know what I mean? So, About a year after her husband's death, the two began to travel together, going on weekend getaways to see Broadway shows, and eventually they traveled the world, going on cruises, going like all over the world and all across America. They even went to the Egyptian pyramids together. So Bernie's kind of like living the dream at this point. He's even sort of becoming the town's Robin Hood, using Marjorie's money to help people out in town. Aww. So he would buy people gifts. He bought like 10 people cars. He helped um, local organizations, like helping them. He helped a couple buy a house. He funded people's small business ventures. And he even got Marjorie going to church again. Now, although this all seems fine and good, um, pretty much everyone in town um, loved him and loved what he was doing. The people who weren't thrilled about all of this was Marjorie's son and his three daughters, They all described um, her as a sweet and loving woman, not the bitch that the town (laughs) described her as. And they visited, the the three granddaughters visited her in 1993. 
Uh, and they said when they visited her, she was like the same old loving Marjorie that they always knew. Uh, and by the next time they visited her in 1994, they said that Bernie's toxic influence over her has was evident to them and that he was turning her against her family. Um, and that when they went to see her, they were just shocked by what they saw. They said that she opened the door and said, I don't know who you are. They, um, you know, according to them, were like, what do you mean, grandma? Like, it's us. And she said she asked them to, they said that she asked them to leave. They looked inside the house and they realized um, the extent of the relationship. They saw pictures of Bernie everywhere. And according to them, there were no pictures of her husband. They were all gone. Now, that would be the last time they saw their grandmother. um, And in their opinion, she was being scammed by um, a con artist who was targeting wealthy widows. Like, that was their opinion of what was happening. And then just spending the money on all the townspeople instead of himself. Yeah, so that was their opinion. Now, one of the the granddaughters named Shanna Nugent, (laughs) she said in one of the interviews, I think the fatal mistake my grandmother made is she ended up buying a $30,000 headstone from Bernie, and from that moment on, he had marked her. Now... In 1995, the first cracks started to show in their relationships. I'm sorry, in their relationship. At some point, he tells, Bernie tells his sister that he believes Marjorie is suffering from early stages of dementia and that that was making her meaner than ever. And then things started getting worse and worse. The relationship was just not as rosy as it initially had appeared to the outside world. According to him, by this point, the relationship had really soured. He felt trapped and wanted out, and Marjorie's 24-7 demands turned into an abusive relationship. Uh, According to Bernie, she was very mean-spirited, very abrupt with me, and like he then would say that he felt that she was abusive. He described it as her placing him in a gilded cage and closing the door on the cage. Now, Bernie recalled a heated discussion where he told Marjorie that he couldn't do the relationship anymore. He could, he could be her friend, but that was it. And that caused Marjorie to like become distraught. She said that she wouldn't allow him to leave her. He tried to leave. He like, he got in his car and backed out of the garage and she like ran and shut the gates and stood in front of the gates so that he couldn't leave. And then he finally agreed to stay. Now, people are definitely of the opinion that he just had to walk up and leave. Like, they don't understand why he felt like he couldn't leave her. But, I mean, we've talked about this before in, like, you know, say, you know, other couples where sometimes it is hard to leave. Like, he did feel, like, a lot of guilt. He felt that like he was the only person who loved her and cared for her. Um, so I do believe that he felt, like, guilty about leaving her um, behind. Now... He, he definitely describes himself as feeling trapped in this relationship. Uh, so that's what I'll say. Now, at Thanksgiving 1996, Bernie has a phone conversation with his sister. He tells her that Marjorie has gone to visit her other sister, the one that she's not estranged from, in Ohio. And things seem pretty normal at Marjorie's home. Bernie decorates for Christmas. In early spring, Bernie starts telling people that Marjorie is very ill and that she is now bedridden. She's no longer seeing visitors. In late spring, Lloyd Tiller, who is Marjorie's banker, has a conversation with Bernie. And Bernie at that time tells him that she's in a nursing home and that he fears that she has early stage of Alzheimer's. Things at the home continue as normal. The maid and gardeners maintain things, and Bernie remains an active and giving member of the the community. 
In early July of 1997, a woman calls the Carthage Police Department requesting that they look in on Marjorie's well-being, but that didn't happen right away because for whatever reason, they were busy with other things. Um, They eventually contact Bernie and he says that Marjorie is recuperating at a hospital in Temple, but deputies check in and they can't find anyone that matches Marjorie's description at the hospitals. At this point, Marjorie's son and one of her granddaughters decide to just go to the house in person and check on her. They go to her home in August of 1997, search the house, and when they go down to the basement, they notice a deep freezer that's taped oddly. When they open the freezer, they see the head of hair poking (gasps) out with a white sheet under frozen food. It was Marjorie. Her head? Well, it's just her head poking up. Her whole body is in this huge freezer, like um, a storage locker kind of freezer. Oh, my God. Yeah. So obviously detectives bring in Bernie for questioning since they were very close. And it wasn't too long before Bernie started becoming very nervous and agitated. Shortly after being brought in, he confesses to shooting Marjorie on November 19th of 1996 with the gun that she had bought him to kill armadillos on the property. He had stored her body in the freezer ever since. Oh, my God. So she was in the freezer for nine months. Nine months? Yeah. From November to August, the middle of August. And he had told people that she was in the hospital. Yeah, or that she wasn't having visitors and that she was suffering, et cetera. Now, according to Danny Buck Davidson, who will be the prosecutor in this case, he shot her in the back four times. Uh, The first bullet in her back made her paralyzed, so she falls straight down onto the concrete. He shoots her again. He then walks straight up to her body, put the nuzzle of the gun to the back of her, and shoots it two more times. Uh, He put it to the back of her head? Yeah. Now, those, the scene in the movie is not as graphic as that, for sure. Um, But, I mean, he's still shooting her in the movie. It's just, like, it seems a little more... I don't know, gruesome, the way it actually went down, than right. what they present in the movie. Well, it sounds like he shot her a lot. Like, he had already subdued also her. Also from behind. So she wasn't, like, coming towards him. This was clearly not self-defense. Right. So, despite that, the town quickly rallies around Bernie. Incredible. Uh, and try to raise money for his bail. Now... The bail, I think, was like initially $1.5 million, but the bail gets raised when Bernie is also charged with laundering money for spending almost a million dollars of her money after she was dead. Uh, despite that, the town is still beside, like behind him. A woman tells the prosecutor, Danny Buck Davidson, I don't care if Mrs. Nugent was the richest lady in town. She was so mean that even if Bernie did kill her, you won't be able to find anyone in town who's going to convict him for murder. Oh, my God. Now, this leads the prosecutor to ask for a change of venue, and he got it. In 1999, Bernie went on trial for the murder I'm sorry, for the murder of Marjorie... <laughs> murder of Marjorie Nugent. I'm sorry. Now... What drove Bernie, the gentlest and most compassionate man, to kill Mrs. Nugent? A lot of townspeople wondered, like, what happened. They're like, he must have snapped. It was a psychotic break, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people thought that he should plead temporary insanity. According to the prosecutor, um, he his assumption is that Mrs. Nugent uh, finally discovered that Bernie had been looting her bank account and that Bernie panicked and shot her when she was going to expose him. So that's like what their MO is going into this um, trial. Now, Bernie's sister, uh, she said that she had a conversation with Bernie from jail 
and that he told her that day that like what happened between her him and Marjorie um they were about to go to into town to run errands and have lunch when he just sort of suddenly picked up the 22 rifle in the garage and started firing. There was other stories that he, she had been nagging about one of his friends, like out of jealousy, and that was what triggered him. Apparently, he then dragged her into the kitchen, put her into the freezer, and washed the blood off the garage floor with a garden hose. So I think, like, some people believe, like, he put her in the freezer as sort of a way, like, I can't deal with what I just did. Like, it wasn't a premeditated thing in a lot of people's opinion. But can you imagine living in a house with someone that's put in your freezer, like a body in your freezer, and a body that's not even put away good enough, like their hair is sticking out? Yeah. Like, he didn't, it's not like he wrapped her up a bunch of times. So right. it was like you couldn't tell there was a body in there. It was like her hair was sticking out of the freezer. And that's really, the fact that he did not get rid of the body is really what, did him in like according to even the prosecutor he's like if he if he had just dumped the body in the gulf of mexico we would have never fucking known but because he left the body that's how it all kind of came tumbling down like do you know what i mean i mean they would have been suspicious of her disappearance right but it's like without the body it's really hard to that's always like the thing yeah so um so yeah and and there was another thing that he, he claimed the reason he left the body in the freezer was that he eventually did want to give her a proper burial. Well, I mean, that's kind of on brand. Which is like (laughs) very on brand. Now, as I mentioned, his defense was going to be basically that it was like equivalent to like an act of passion. Like this is not a premeditated thing. He snapped, et cetera. He didn't wake up that morning saying, I'm going to kill this woman. The trial lasted less than a week and it took them about 20 minutes to find Bernie guilty. So nine years after he met Marjorie at her husband's funeral, he was now sentenced in life, sentenced to life in prison for her murder. Shortly after the trial, Richard Ringletter got in touch with Skip Hollinsworth, who had written um, all of these articles for Texas Monthly, as I mentioned earlier. They began writing the script for Bernie. It was in production hell for many years and seemed dead forever when in May of 2010, Linklater calls Skip up and says... Um, Hey, the movie's on. So they finally got financing, I think because they signed Jack Black on to the movie, uh, et cetera. So he actually, like, one of the funny things in this movie is that he, he, like, cast people, townspeople of Carthage in the movie as sort of, like, the gossips. Like, in the movie, it sort of has a documentary aspect to it where every once in a while he'll cut to these, like, old women sitting on their front porches, like telling the story. And those are actual townspeople who knew these people Wow, kind of telling these gossipy stories uh, in the movie. And it's, it's kind of like a really cool part about that movie. It's almost like the Greek chorus or something, right. but it's just like these Texas, like busybody, like no, like they know everything and they're like telling you the real story. So he actually cast all these people from Carthage. Now, Jack Black, like goes to prison and like, talks to Bernie like they like really get along and they like love each other like Richard and and Jack Black fucking love Bernie too everyone loves Bernie Rachel he's that cool of a guy now uh the movie as I mentioned um also stars Shirley MacLaine as Marjorie and Matthew McConaughey plays Danny Buck Davidson the prosecutor this has all my favorite people in it well because it's Richard he always has Matthew McConaughey, right? Like yeah, a lot but of his I'm just movies. Yeah. This cast is great. Yeah. 
No, it's it's really it's a good movie. I definitely recommend it. So in April 2012, the movie premieres in Linkletter's hometown of Austin, and it's a hit. Critics love it. Now, this story is about to take another bizarre twist that began the night of the movie premiere. According to Linkletter, a little feisty lady comes up to me and she says, I bet there was some crazy stuff going on at that trial. She is appeals lawyer, Jody Cole, and after watching the movie, she got a hunch that the trial of Bernie had been a miscarriage of justice. She says to Richard, I want the world to know that Bernie is a good person and that the outcome is unacceptable. I said, look at that. He snaps. Cole said of the scene in the movie where he shoots Marjorie, and so I thought, why did he get a life sentence? At this point, she asked Richard if he has the transcripts from the 1990 murder trial, and he gives her boxes and boxes of transcripts from that first trial. Um, So Richard is like happy to help. He wants Bernie to have an appeal. She starts poring over the files. Um, She thinks that the life sentence hinged on the prosecutor's argument that the murder was premeditated. So 16 years after he shoots Marjorie dead, Bernie and like Jody Cole get together and she starts talking to him about what he felt like the morning of the shooting. This is the appeals lawyer. Yes. Her name is Jody Cole. Now he says to her that morning, I felt like I wasn't part of the shooting. I felt like I wasn't even there. And I have learned um, that it's called a disassociative, disassociative episode. So Cole, like in that period, this has become a thing where people are like, you can disassociate from a moment when you're killing someone, like you're not even there. Like that wasn't like an available defense back in like the nineties even. I mean, I know about what disassociation is. I, I, I've never heard of it necessarily uh, in the context of murder. Yeah. But obviously disassociation is a real thing. Yes. So in Cole's opinion, he is so overwhelmed with stress and stress and emotion that he actually disassociates, like leaves his body uh, and kills Marjorie with not even not even being in the right frame of mind. Now, according to her, this woman had sort of been abuse, like emotionally abusive to him for a very long time. He was under a lot of stress like dealing with her 24 seven. Didn't he try to leave the relationship? Yes. So he did try to leave the relation, like leave the relationship. He pretty much stayed as long as he could. And according to Jody Cole, his body acted in a way to end the abuse that he couldn't do for himself. Uh, That's her um, opinion. Now he, this is where he also told like the information came out about him being sexually abused by his uncle. He had never told anyone that until Jody Cole starts talking to him about like whatever his emotional state and stuff like that. So he confesses that to Cole. Cole brings up these findings to um, the DA, including Danny Buck Davidson, the guy who prosecuted. And like, by the way, was fucking pissed at the town. Like he thought the town was fucking insane. He's like, this guy killed a woman. And you guys are like, we love him. <laughs> like he thought the town was fucking insane. I mean, it is pretty wild. You got to You got to wonder what's going on there. You got to wonder like, well, how bad is this lady? If the whole town is yeah, like, around this guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's just kind of like, oh, everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> like, I mean, that is a pretty huge thing to excuse. Yeah. So the, I'm just, I'm just bringing it up to like, like the, this guy is furious, but even he agrees now that perhaps it sh- he should have only sought a 20-year sentence against Bernie rather than a life. 
And that probably would have been the case if some of this evidence had been admitted earlier. Now, another little snippet of evidence that I kept seeing, but I couldn't find enough about was some people said that when he gave his written confession, he was being threatened by the police who took it that they had videotapes of something that they would expose him. And I could never find out what that was uh, or what it was even about. For some reason, I feel like it might have been related to him being gay, but I'm not really sure because I'm just trying to think, like, what would they have had? Like, there was something where certain men were coming to his house, but I could never find out what it was, so I really don't know. Uh, But anyway, so that confession should have also probably been at least contested in some way. Um, On March 6, 2014, his life sentence is thrown out. A new sentencing trial is ordered, and he is released from prison while he's awaiting this new sentence. Now, Bernie moves into an apartment on Richard Linkletter's property in Austin. Like, he lives in an apartment above the garage. Like, that's how much Richard believes in this guy. And he basically starts living a new little life while he awaits this uh, sentencing trial. Now, uh, Danny Buck Davidson like recuses himself from doing the new trial and is replaced by two prosecutors who unfortunately are determined to put him back behind bars for life. Uh, one of them is named Jane stars and, and the other is assistant attorney general, Lisa Tanner. And they're just not buying um, Jody Cole's defense about the um, disassociative state. This according to them was just a straight up execution. And according to them, they believe he's conned Hollywood and the whole judicial system. So they're definitely playing a little bit that like the liberal Hollywood came in and they're, they're trying to make this guy, but he's a fucking evil, whatever. That's not exactly true though. Cause the town of Texas loves him too. And they're probably pretty conservative. So they say that Bernie didn't have this disassociative episode. It's a case of elder abuse and him going after vulnerable people and that he abused Marjorie financially, and it's just cold-blooded murder, basically. Now, in April of 2016, after two years of freedom, his new sentencing trial finally begins. It's moved to Henderson, Texas, because um, Bernie had so many friends and fans in Carthage still, so they didn't want to put him back in that town uh, either, like even at this point in time. like He still had that huge fucking fan base there. Um, He did not testify in his own trial, but like Richard Linkletter took the stand for him. Um, His uncle under oath denied ever having molested Bernie, but he did admit to writing Bernie a letter that was sexual in nature, which is like, well, those two things probably go together. (laughs) No offense. Like, I don't think that like, that's a weird distinction to make. Right. It was just a letter. (laughs) I sexted him, but I never touched him. Come on, dude. Yeah. I don't know why I 100% buy that this uncle did it. That's my opinion. Now, on April 2nd, 2016, 26 years after he met Marjorie, the jury once again sentenced Bernie to 99 years in prison. 99 years? Yeah. So obviously... That was devastating to Bernie. Richard Linkletter is upset. He's back in prison for life, basically. It's very discouraging, said Jack Black, uh, who also like did some fundraisers for him and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, even today, there is a Bernie TD fan club in Carthage. Um, he will be eligible for parole in 2029 when he will be 70 years old. So, I mean, that's coming up pretty... I guess it's not pretty soon. <laughs> Cause he, so, yeah. So 2029 will be the first time he's eligible for parole. Now, 
so yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the case. He's, he's basically a model prisoner. Like he does like Bible studies. He does singing. Like he's like the typical model prisoner. Does he have like a million friends? Probably. Like when he was first in prison, he did get like beaten. Like he had a severe beaten like back in 1999. But I think it's, I mean, I want to say going better, but it's like here, I mean, here's the thing. Like the, the, the question here is, is this a good man who snapped and did one bad thing? Or is this a con man who fooled basically everyone he ever knew? That's the and committed, real question here. And committed a murder, right? Right. To me, I do believe that this is a person who snapped. Like, I don't think that he was a con man. I think that he had access to money for the first time in his life and was like, I'm like Robin Hood now. I can finally give people things that I never could give them. And like, maybe he got into it too much. I think if he was a con man... It would have he would have been spent it more on himself as opposed to the townspeople because he didn't. It's not like he was buying the townspeople's friendship; they already liked him, right? So to me, it's kind of like stealing money from your mom when you're a kid and buying your friends can't. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like you're. I don't really see this as like a con man who was in it for the money to rob these old ladies. I do believe he is this person who cared. And I think, but it's not like he was using other old ladies' money. There wasn't no. other reports from. It was just this one woman who gave him money, and he spent it helping people. And it's like, honestly, like you can watch the Forty Eight Hours Mystery, and his family is in that uh, episode. And it's like, obviously, you feel bad for them, and it's their grandmother. But there is an element to you where you're kind of like, they don't seem like they were close to her either. So it's like they're all sort of indignant and acting like he's this comment. It's like I don't think they even really knew what was going on. I can see how you could make that judgment. Like yeah. he's a con man after right. my grandma for her money. I mean, right. it's like a very common thing. I just think this is like the one one in a million time when that yeah. just wasn't the case. Like it's a very weird story because yeah. on its face it has all the trappings of oh, classic taking advantage of the older rich person. Right. And murdering them for their money. Yeah. Or murdering them when you got found out. Right, because we've seen a million yeah. types of things. And I, I don't doubt that it was like illegal for him to do what he did with her money, but I don't think he was doing it for himself. Like It doesn't seem within his character that he would be acting maliciously. And by the way, I didn't mention this, but I think it was like a cousin of hers at some point while she was still alive said that she said to Bernie, like, spend all my money because I don't want my family getting any of it when I die. Like... So there is more than just his word that she was like, just like, get rid of my money. (laughs) Like, it's not going anywhere with me and I don't want my fucking family to get it. So right or wrong, like, I think she did have this, um, you know, disdain for her family. And I don't know why it could have been unjustified, but she had some beef with them. I'm curious about more of her history. Yeah. Just her life history about what's going on there. There wasn't much about it. I saw like in some in this article, it wasn't even like interesting enough to add to the the story. So I didn't really add it, but it was literally like grew up in Carthage at some point meets that guy, the oil man. And they just right. have like a, a marriage. Like that was pretty much it. She like didn't do anything really. I just want to know like what she did to piss people off so <laughs> much in this town. I think she just had an attitude. Right. Like she was not friendly. Like I'm sure if I went to that town, they'd be like, who's this bitch? <laughs> like I'm not like a person who's going to walk in like Bernie and be like 
friendly to everyone and like welcoming. I'm going to just go to the store and like mind my own business. But I think in those certain types of town, that's seen as like, who's this bitch? Like, why is she so, she's too good for us? Like, and so it could have been a little bit of both. Like Marjorie was maybe a little bitchy and that made them extra hateful towards her. I just don't know. There was no incidents that I could see where she like stole someone's husband or like ran a kid over or like whatever. Like, I mean, maybe they just thought she got her salsa from New York City. Yes, absolutely. I think it's also a little element that she grew up there and left and then came back this rich bitch. Maybe yeah. there was a little element of that to it. Uh, in the movie, I mean, Shirley MacLaine plays her and she's, I fucking love Shirley I MacLaine. I love her. So even Shirley MacLaine as a bitch is kind of likable. So I just got goosebumps <laughs> when you said that sentence. <laughs> I love Shirley MacLaine. One time someone, I had a picture. Oh, when we had our makeup done that time and someone's like, you look like Shirley MacLaine. I was like, thank you. (laughs) It was like the only time someone told me I look like a celebrity or was like happy. I was like, thank you. Cause she's cool too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the story. It's a weird story, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely remember seeing the trailer when the movie came out and being like, oh yeah, that's on my list. I got to see that movie. But now I really want to see it. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting movie. It's like a black comedy because it's definitely like comedy. Right. When it's a dark story. Um, and Jack Black is good in it. Everyone's great in it. And it has like a trial. Like it has like all the elements that you like. And like right. I said, I love the the casting. Like Richard Linklater always does those kind of interesting casting things and like, you know, interesting like unique ways of presenting movies, yeah. I think. Like, that's his thing. He also was really irritated when the prosecution were like, it's just Hollywood. He's like, um, I live in Austin. <laughs> I don't live in Hollywood. Like, right. I'm an Austin filmmaker, you know. like Right. So he was kind of bugged by that, too. Um, but yeah, that's the story. Cool. Check it out. Check out the movie and check out the 48 Hours and tell us what you think. Yeah, tell us what you guys think. Was he... Uh are you team Bernie or team Marjorie? Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, this is a, just a hey, weird fucking case. Maybe they're just like the cup, a couple of crazy old <laughs> Like maybe they're both like good. In the wrong. In the wrong or the right. Like maybe this was just their own making, this little weird relationship. It had to end some way. I don't Ugh, know. Like That's morbid, Buzzy. <laughs> It had had to end some way. That's awful. I guess, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Fucking 10 one-star reviews in one day. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Let's end on that. Uh, Okay. We'll see you guys on Friday. Okay, bye. Bye.